This episode of Armchair Explorer is brought to you by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. With seven drive modes, the Pathfinder's available intelligent 4x4 is built for even the most epic journeys. And epic journeys is what we're all about. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. I was jumping at two o'clock in the morning at a new moon in complete pitch blackness. And I literally was so terrified. I mean, every nerve ending in my body was screaming, don't do this. Like, do not do this. You're going to die. If you don't die, you're gonna get seriously injured and you're here by yourself. It's impossible to describe the sheer horror. I mean, it's, and I remember looking down and I remember going, I'm not doing this. There's no way I'm gonna do this. And right as I said that, I jumped off. Hi guys, welcome to the Armchair Explorer, where the world's greatest adventurers tell their best story from the road. My name's Aaron Miller, I'm a travel writer, and I want you to buckle up because today is, I think, the craziest episode we've ever done. Today we're talking with Jeb Corliss, who's truly a legend among legends in the world of base jumping and wingsuit flying. He has some incredible stories to share. You don't want to miss this one. It's going to have you on the edge of your seat. But first, I just want to give a quick warning. This episode contains material about suicidal ideation, as well as descriptions of some pretty gruesome accidents. So it's definitely not one to play around the kids. But if you're up for it, it is an amazing story and you're going to love it. Are you ready to fly? Yeah, me too. Let's go. Our guest today is Jeb Corliss, and if you don't already know that name, you'll never forget it after you hear this story. Jeb is a world-famous base jumper and wingsuit pilot who's pushed his sports to the absolute limit. In his decades-long career, he's completed over 2,000 jumps, starred in several documentaries, worked on blockbuster movies, and lots, lots more. And he recently came out with a book about his life. It's amazing. It's called Memoirs from the Edge, Exploring the Line Between Life and Death. And oh my God, is that well titled, because he walks that edge every single day. It has some mind blowing stories, but it also has a lot of wisdom and inspiration that he's learned along the way. He has lived an extraordinary life, a life very few people dare to live. And it's given him a unique perspective about what our time here on earth is all about. So search it up, buy it at your local bookstore or check out his website, jebcorliss.net. That's two S's on that. And you can also find his incredible footage and documentaries on YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook. That's just under his name, Jeb Corliss. I'll include all the links in the show notes. Go and follow him. Go and watch that stuff and go and buy that book. It would make a great Christmas present. He's an awesome guy and his stuff is incredible. So favor time. If you like this show, please help us spread the word. We are building a community of people who love adventure, love travel, and want to help spread our message of love for the outdoors, of living life to the full, and the pure joy of exploring this amazing planet of ours. 
If that sounds like you, and you might have a friend or two that you think would like this show as well, then please let them know. Post about it, whatever you can do. It really does make a huge difference, and it's a great way to support the show. Thank you for whatever you can do. Please also connect with us on social. We're on Instagram and Facebook at Armchair Explorer Podcast. You can also sign up for the newsletter at armchair-explorer.com. Lots of good stuff in that. And if you're feeling particularly generous, buy me a pint for less than the cost of a single frothy beverage. You can become a patron of the show and join our Explorers Club with a bunch of exclusive benefits, including ad-free shows, support starts at $3, $5, $10, whatever you feel is right, whatever you can afford. Thank you for whatever you can do. But for now, let's strap on our parachutes and literally jump into the episode because these are seriously some of the most heart-hammering stories you're ever going to hear. Now, most of us have dreamt about flying, but for most of us, dreaming is as close as we'll come. Jeb, however, is not most people. And even within the small community of daredevils that make up this sport, he is known as that pilot, someone who's willing to risk it all to attempt the impossible. And taking that kind of risk is an extreme choice. And for Jeb, it's no coincidence that he decided to make that choice when he was already prepared to give up on his life. At 16, I was suffering from very serious depression. I did not like waking up in the morning. I did not care about anything. I had no hopes, I had no dreams. I wanted nothing. I went through some very dark moments and I can remember having a gun in my mouth about ready to shoot myself. I was going to kill myself. My mind was trying to kill me. But he didn't pull the trigger. And it's lucky he didn't because shortly afterwards, he happened to stumble across a documentary about base jumping. I saw a man standing on the edge of a cliff and I watched him step off of it. And it had such a profound impact on me. It was like being struck by lightning. I literally felt like electricity running through my body. and. I realized that is literally the perfect activity. I mean, it's a win-win for me. If I jump off and I survive and I, and I make it, well, then I've done something that very few other human beings in this world are willing to do because they're just so terrified of dying. I obviously don't give a shit. And if I don't make it and die, well, then I get what I want. I'm released from my suffering on this planet. So I'm like, that is perfect. And I instantly knew that that's what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Like, I I would do anything it took. There are a certain group of humans, I was one of them, who cannot find happiness in their life any way else. They need extreme experience to somehow cope with the crushing weight of the human mind. And that helped me hang on. Like just that thought of don't kill yourself this way. There's better ways to kill yourself. Like there's more interesting ways to die. If you're gonna die, do it doing something, you know? But as it turns out, learning to base jump is not an easy or short process. It took Jeb five years, hundreds of skydives, dozens of tandem base jumps, and multiple levels of certification before he was finally ready for his first real base jump. He was 21 years old. 
that was an experience so terrifying and so extreme that it shifted my entire personality. It shifted my concept of reality. It shifted my mind in a way that is hard to put into words. It was a, a 300 foot antenna. And as I was climbing, I'm like, I'm not doing this. I'm not gonna do this. I'm just gonna go up there, I'm gonna take a look. And I, I'm literally having to trick myself because there was no way I was going to do this. Like it was so far beyond what I should have been doing at that time. And it's funny because now, after thousands and thousands of base jumps, if someone came to me and said, hey, I want you to go jump off this antenna, I'd be like, no. Everything about it was terrifying and horrible and awful. And I was jumping at two o'clock in the morning at a new moon in complete pitch blackness. And I literally was so terrified. I mean, every nerve ending in my body was screaming, don't do this. Like, do not do this. You're going to die. If you don't die, you're gonna get seriously injured and you're here by yourself. It's impossible to describe the sheer horror. And I remember looking down and I remember going, I'm not doing this. There's no way I'm gonna do this. And right as I said that, I jumped off. And I remember everything freezing. The horror and fear was so extreme that it created the most powerful sense of time distortion I've ever had. And it literally froze time. Like I literally was off the antenna looking down and it literally, I was stopped. Like everything was stopped. And all of a sudden, it went from being pitch black, new moon, to all of a sudden, I could see. I mean, it wasn't like daytime, but I could see the ground, I could see the guy wires, I could see every rung, I could see the light blinking in the center, I could see the road that I was gonna land on. I mean, all of a sudden everything became clear. And I'm like, huh. I could feel the air touching my skin. I mean, I could smell the rust on the guy wires. I could, every single nerve was firing at its most optimum level possible. And as I'm like kind of frozen in time, all of a sudden I'm like, huh. I've just passed half the antenna. My parachute hasn't opened yet. Oh, I'm now at about 120 feet. And I look down and I'm like, oh, I'm gonna hit the razor wire fence. And I remember bringing my arms up and covering my face and be like bracing for impact. Like I'm gonna die. I mean, that's literally what I know. And as I'm going to impact, all of a sudden I hear Velcro go. And as the Velcro goes like that, my parachute opens and literally opens with so much force it feels like someone had put me up against a brick wall and taken a baseball bat and just hit me in the chest as hard as they could. And it literally just knocked the air out of me and just like almost knocked me unconscious. It was such a hard opening. And I was like, boom! And I'm like, holy shit. All of a sudden I notice how low I am. I don't have time to clear toggles, which is how you steer your parachute. So I grab a rear riser, which turns my canopy and I literally impact the asphalt almost sideways and bounce. And as I bounce off the asphalt, I'm like laying there and my entire body is just like, sh I'm like shaking, like shaking uncontrollably. And at that moment, I became a base jumper. Like it was not, there's no question. I stood up and I'm like, I am a base jumper now. I realized that there was nothing in my life that was ever going to stand between me and what I wanted to do. Nothing. Not my mom disowning me, 
not my friends abandoning me. I couldn't even stop me. Like, I couldn't make me not do it. That's how powerful it was. I realized that I was capable of anything and that I was willing to sacrifice everything. I was willing to die. That gives you an idea. The power, and I remember as I stood up, this just like, it felt like literal power, like running through my body. And I didn't sleep for three days. Like it literally just, it amped me up so much that I could not sleep because I realized what I was going to do. And I'm like, oh my, it's about to get so hardcore. Jeb completed nearly a hundred jumps in those first years, each jump bolder and more dangerous than the one before. He plunged down Angel Falls in Venezuela, the more than 3,000 foot highest waterfall in the world, and leapt off the Petronas Tower in Malaysia, the tallest building in the world at the time. He jumped off the Eiffel Tower, Christ the Redeemer statue in Brazil, the Golden Gate Bridge, but then, still fairly early in his career, he found himself in South Africa, contemplating what should have been a relatively simple jump off a 300-foot rushing waterfall called Howick Falls. When I got there, I kind of looked at it, I'm like, wow, there's a lot of water. It was heavy water volume. I'm like, is that normal? And he's like, ah, it's a little more than usual, but uh, I think it's fine, and I'm like, do you think the water volume's gonna create like turbulence? And he's like, only one way to find out. In order to get there, you have to actually cross the river at the top. So you're actually wading through. And if you were to fall, and so you'd go over the waterfall and die. So it's actually just crossing was like a kind of a gnarly thing. But anyways, we cross and I, I get to where the exit point is. And I get some little paper wind indicators. And I drop them over the edge and they go straight down. Like no turbulence, like literally perfectly straight. I'm like, huh. So I dropped a few more, and I'm like, oh, there's like no turbulence at all. It's like literally straight down. That's what I thought. But really what it was, was the waterfall was actually pushing the air at the ground. So it was actually, it was affecting them. It just wasn't making them move. They were just going straight down. Those wind indicators are key. If they fall straight down, that means there is little to no wind and it's safe to jump, usually. And that's crucial because it could be calm at the top, but completely different conditions on the way down. And if the wind drift is substantial enough, it could be deadly. That day, the indicators were falling straight down. And because of that, Jeb thought that he was looking at a fairly low risk jump. He began a series of calculations, trying to determine the best angle for departure, the best moment to open his chute, the pathways down that would be safe, Based on the direction of the air currents and the position of the cliff, he knew that he could turn to the right or even fully backwards and he would survive. There would be no problem. The only risk of danger would be if he swung 90 degrees to the left, which would send him straight into the path of the thundering falls. So I'm thinking, ah, is it worth it? You know, and obviously I was young and stupid and, you know, and I'm all worried the chances of getting a 90 left. <laughs> well, Murphy's Law, 100%. <laughs> so anyway, I'm saying I'm not going to go for it. So I call my buddy and I tell him I'm ready to go so he can film it. As I jump off, my left shoulder actually drops. Because, I, you know, it's like that thing where you're like looking, looking left, like don't go left, don't go left. You kind of drift left, you know, as I give myself a 90 left. 
My parachute opens, facing the waterfall, and it starts surging forward. And I'm like, oh shit. I grab a rear riser, and I actually turn away from it, and I think I'm good. Like, I'm like, oh, I got away. When I felt something touching my feet, and then it just sucked me in. And as it sucked me in, it collapsed my parachute, and I went back behind the waterfall, and I look down, and I see a ledge, and I impact the ledge in a sitting position. And as I hit, I hit so hard that I couldn't believe a human body could hit something with that much force and continue to live. Like the impact was so extreme that as I hit, I'm like, oh, you just feel, I can feel my back just break. As I fall forward, I impact the second time, which crushes my ribs, breaks my sternum, hyperextends my right knee, breaks my left ankle, breaks most of my ribs, chips teeth, and then I basically fall head first impact the water again. Luckily, there weren't any rocks. If there was one rock, I would have been dead instantly. I wasn't even wearing a helmet. And then I felt the force of the waterfall just basically push me, push me down. The footage of this crash is horrifying. It's hard to watch. You can see Jeb carried by the torrents of rushing air swing directly into the waterfall and then suddenly just disappear. The seconds creep by. And then a hint of life appears in the water below. He had been swept off the ledge and into the pool at the base of the falls. I remember being underwater and being completely shattered. Like I could feel everything is broken, everything. It gives you an idea where I was mentally at the time because the only thing I thought about was wiggling my toes. So I like wiggled my toes and I'm like, oh, I'm not paralyzed. I can base jump again. Like I'm literally dying and I'm like, oh, I'm not paralyzed. If I survive this, I'll probably be able to jump again. Which is insane to be thinking at that moment. But then I go into survival mode and survival mode is a funny thing because you start focusing on what you need to survive at that exact moment. So at that exact moment, I needed oxygen. If I didn't get air in the next few moments, I would die. But Luckily for me, I was a little bit of a chubby bastard at the time. I was around 200 pounds and I was buoyant. So I actually had to float it up to the surface. And as I popped up, I remember putting my head up and trying to take a breath, but my lungs were being punctured by my ribs. So I couldn't really breathe very well. I was kind of like, like this like gasping, like I got like just a little bit and then I was pushed back under. And the uh, pressure from the waterfall was actually pushing me downstream and finally pushed me into the shallows started getting cold pretty quick. So the waterfall's creating this like really powerful wind that's blasting off of it. And that wind is blowing on me and I start getting hypothermic like right away. And I remember getting shivers. And as I'm shivering, the shivering is actually moving the bones that are broken in my body. So it's very, very painful. And I remember looking at my canopy and like trying to stand up because I knew if I could get my canopy around me, I could get at least some kind of warmth. So I remember trying with all my might to stand up. I remember pushing with everything and not being able to move at all. And it's a very weird thing to like try to move and not be able to. And you're like, uh-oh, I've never experienced anything like that. He lay in that frigid water, shivers rattling his broken bones. He knew his friend would be on the way, but he also knew it would take him a long time to get there. And he didn't know if he would make it. Things couldn't get any worse. Until they did. 
This episode of Armchair Explorer is presented by the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder. From muddy jungle paths and snowy trails to rolling sand dunes, the 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has the capability to take you to some of the most epic destinations on Earth. And Pathfinder, that's a pretty cool name, isn't it? Because that's also what this show is all about. Exploring, getting off trail, having adventures, finding your own path and living life to the fullest. Sound like you? Yep, sounds like me too. Which is why I'm so excited to partner with Nissan. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder has seven drive modes, available intelligent 4x4. It's got the best towing capacity in its class, up to 6,000 pounds. So go ahead and bring all that gear with you and lots more. The 2024 Nissan Pathfinder, a vehicle built for adventures everywhere. So thanks again to Nissan for sponsoring this episode and for the reminder to chase bigger, better, more exciting adventures and enjoy the ride along the way. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. Apparently, when I hit the waterfall the first time, it had sliced my pants open and ripped a huge gash inside my ass. And I was bleeding into the water. And all of a sudden, I feel these things crawling on me. I feel something crawling over here, and I feel something crawling on my leg, and then all of a sudden I see something kind of scurry by my face, and it was this little crab. And all of a sudden, they were all attracted to the wound, and they started eating my flesh. And, you know, it, it was, a, <laughs> it's disturbing. It was an incredibly disturbing experience, to be honest with you, and very painful. And I remember thinking, you know, they always talk about, you know, how you go into shock during these things. And I'm like, where is that shock thing? I mean, <laughs> I'd really appreciate some shock right around now. Can I get some of that, please? <laughs> and no, it just was pain. That level of pain starts becoming all there is. Your mind becomes so consumed by it that you can think of nothing else and it becomes like a hurricane inside your mind. They also tell you that you're gonna forget pain. Like, oh, you'll forget, no. I remember it quite clearly. Searing and, and burning, horrifyingly painful. And it took about an hour for my friend to get to me. And I was being eaten alive the entire time. So he gets the crabs off. He tried to pull me out of the water, but I was just too heavy for him and my back was broken. So he didn't really want to move me too much because I knew, I mean, I knew my back was broken. Like it wasn't, there was no question. So he ends up squatting down in front of me and I'm inside the canopy. And I remember reaching out of the canopy and grabbing him by his ankle and kind of like just holding onto his ankle and just shivering in excruciating pain while we were waiting for the rescue to get to me. Unfortunately, I had jumped close to sunset and it was too dark for helicopters. They had to send in a team of people to carry me out, which was complicated because they had to set up lines and pulleys to get me across class five rapids. So it took them about three hours from the impact. And I remember when the first paramedic got to me, he's just like, we're pretty sure your back is broken. We think you have broken hips. You know, your legs look broken. Um, we're not really sure, but it, the damage looks pretty substantial. He's all, don't worry, I'm gonna give you some morphine for the pain. And I'm just like, no morphine. Do not give me morphine. 
Jeb is 100% sober from drugs and alcohol, a life decision born out of growing up with a father who is an addict. But staying sober in daily life is one thing. This is insanity. He knew the hike out wouldn't be quick, and he was told he would likely be bumped off every rock along the way. With that kind of terrain, there was just no other way to get him down. But he stuck to what he believed in and the way he wanted to live his life, irrespective of the situation. And he refused to change his mind. They put me on a backboard, strap me down, then they take that backboard and put it in this like orange sled thing with handles that they can use to carry. And then they start moving me in teams of six. And I remember being carried and now I'm kind of strapped and I can kind of see it. It's pitch black, it's gotten super dark, you see headlamps and stuff. And then I remember being hooked into like these cables. And then as they're like <laughs> trying to cross the river with me, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm there. And then all of a sudden I'm underwater. They just dunk me. And so now I'm basically being waterboarded across this river. So I'm going to water, no idea for how long. You're never quite sure. And you can't move. And all of a sudden I'll come up and I'll try to breathe. And then I'm underwater again. And they did this the entire way across the river. And I was just like, you can't be serious. And then as we got to the other side of the river, they basically put me down on some rocks and one of the guys slips. And as he slips, he puts his hand on my broken ribs and lifts himself off his entire body weight on my broken ribs. And I remember just being like, like you, you can't be serious. And the guy's like, I'm really sorry. And I was like, you know, it's not your fault, dude. You know, this is, I did this, there's no one, I can blame no one but myself. It took nine hours from the moment of his impact until he was finally put into the ambulance. And when he arrived at the hospital, he was swarmed by teams of doctors and nurses who bundled him into one machine after another and hooked him up to multiple IVs and monitors. At one point, a doctor asked him, I bet you'll never do that again. But Jeb just laughed. Because as he lay there, day after day, stuck, frustrated, in pain, angry, an opportunity arose. At the time, Jeb was working in an office job that he hated. He was just jumping whenever he had the time and money to do so. But his friends had filmed the accident, he thought just for personal use. But word of that footage spread, and soon he was getting calls from production companies to license it for money. A lot of money. And that changed everything. If I had not had that accident, if I had not gotten that footage, I probably would never have become a professional base jumper because I would have had to have continued working the job I didn't like, which took up a lot of time, and I wouldn't have been able to dedicate myself to jumping the way I did. So it's fascinating, right? The worst thing that ever happened to me that should have been not just life-ending, but a career-ending injury. Like that was a career, most people who are smart would go through something like that and be like, I'm done, I'm not doing that ever again, like that's it. It actually was the catalyst for my entire career and became the catalyst for my entire life. If I could go back in time and make it not happen, I wouldn't do that. I actually appreciate it. Like I actually look at that moment and I'm like, wow, I actually think it saved my life in the long run. I had been traveling for almost two months by the time I had it. I had been, you know, I did over 30 jumps off 11 objects, you know, and I wasn't going to stop until I got either seriously injured or dead. So that accident was super crucial for me 
to make me realize, dude, you need to calm down. I needed that kind of spanking. And, that, and this is another thing I learned about myself too. I can't get a little hurt. Getting a little hurt teaches me nothing. I have to get really hurt. I have to suffer for months, if not years. I mean, to give you an idea, I'm still suffering from back pain from that accident. And that taught me everything. I think that's one thing that I've been very fortunate with is I've had some really serious accidents and somehow I have survived them and been able to recover enough to continue. It's really, really hard to kill me. I'm kind of like a cockroach. I survive and I not just survive, I thrive. It is a fascinating thing that I have seen so much carnage and experienced so much pain and I keep going. I think most people who are successful in life are successful because they don't give up. And I honestly think that's the reason why that waterfall footage did so well was because people love watching people get fucked up. But what they like more than that is to then watch that person get back up and do it again. That story is very powerful and people can relate to it. And I think that that's kind of what has made my career that's what I am. Jeb's accident in South Africa was in 1999. And in the decades that followed, he refused to slow down. He pushed the limits of what wingsuit flying and base jumping could be. In 2009, he jumped out of a helicopter over the Matterhorn and flew within mere feet of its rocky surface the entire way down, tracing its outline in a mind-boggling stunt of airborne acrobatics. He soared through a narrow archway in China on live TV and even attempted to jump off the Empire State Building in the middle of the night. He was arrested for that one, but he got away with it. But there were also tragedies. In 2003, Jeb and his friend, fellow jumper Dwayne Weston, were attempting a dual stunt that had never been done before, with Jeb flying under the Royal Gorge Bridge in Colorado and Dwayne flying above it, at the exact same time. Tragically, Dwayne miscalculated his angle and smashed into the bridge at 120 miles an hour, sending Jeb flying through a mist of blood and what was left of his friend. But undeterred, in 2012, he returned to South Africa and the scene of that first major accident at Howick Falls. But lightning struck twice and disaster struck again. While flying over Table Mountain, attempting to soar close as he could to the ground, he dipped just a couple of inches too low and he slammed into the rocks, flipping head over heels in midair and crashing into the ground. I am the only person in the world to survive a terminal bounce on flat solid granite. The injuries were severe. It took me over a year and a half of surgeries and pain and suffering to, I had to learn to walk again twice. It was bad. And in this context of going through rehab after a year and a half, I get a phone call from China. <laughs> Jeb had performed a wingsuit stunt live on TV in China a few years previously. It was watched by more than 500 million people and they were desperate to have him back. 
Now, just months after what should have been a life-ending injury, the same team approached him about doing something even crazier, something that had never been done before. They called it the Flying Dagger. And they're like, hey, we'd like you to come back and do another stunt for us. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not psychologically there. I'm, I'm rebuilding my body. I'm not interested. And they're just like, well, how about you just come and take a look? My leg was still bleeding. This was like four months after my injury that they're asking me to come back and look at this thing. They're like, well, we'll pay you to come. You don't have to do anything. You just come and look. I'm like, ah, okay, I'll come look. I am probably not gonna do it. They're like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. So end up flying to, to China and they take me to this place. I've never seen anything like it. It was a geological anomaly unlike anything I've ever seen in the world. Basically it's one cliff and there's gouges cut into this cliff. It looked like a, someone took a laser and did it. It doesn't look natural. And this crack in this thing is, if you put your arms out, it's basically 15 feet wide. So you only, you only have three feet on each side of your arms. And you're like, wow, this is super narrow. And it's not vertical, it's actually crooked. So if, when you fly it, you have to fly side slipping, which is weird, like I've never done before. So he had to be incredibly well prepared. He would do the jump, but he had one condition. He would need five full days with at least one practice flight per day. The team in China agreed, and true to his word, a year into his recovery after multiple skin grafts, near amputation, severe infections, regrowing his ACL and relearning how to walk, Jeb returned to China, ready to fly. First day, everything looks great. Helicopters are there. Tomorrow I'm gonna to start training. I actually felt pretty good about it. I'm like, this actually, I think we're gonna be good. That night, we get word that a typhoon's coming and that it's gonna hit mainland China. Next day, clouds, rain, wind, no way I can do a practice jump. And I'm just like, oh no. I'm like, well, you know what? Let's use this day to go find some trees that I might potentially have to land in. I need to go to the bottom of the, where I come out. And if I pull really low and have something happen, I need to find the tree that I'm gonna like go for. As I get to where I think I'm gonna land in the trees, I look in and all of a sudden, you know, they look green. Yeah, they look like they'll be nice soft trees to land in. And as I get closer, I realize it's green on the outside and dead broken branches on the inside. Meaning, if I land in one of these things, I'm probably gonna get skewered, a broken branch is gonna go through my body, and I'm going to bleed to death before anyone gets anywhere near me. All of a sudden, I realize quickly, oh, this might as well be molten lava. I mean, if I land in these trees, I'm dead. Like, there's no way I can land here safely. Like, the chances of me dying landing in these trees are way too high. The smallest error would mean certain death. Not only would he have to fly through a 15-foot gap in a mountain at terminal velocity, 120 miles an hour, the landing site was so bad, he would have to deploy his chute hundreds of feet below the usual safe height, and then somehow steer himself to what was no more than a three-feet wide path with a cliff on one side and a forest of deadly tree spikes on the other. And then it got worse. The next five days, we don't get to jump at all. The typhoon gives me no training whatsoever. The day before the event, I was able to get in two jumps that were completely worthless because I wasn't able to actually work my way in. All those jumps did for me was tell me how screwed I was. I needed 
the jumps. Like I needed the training jumps. I am not prepared for this. There's no way I'm gonna be able to pull this off without getting hurt. Like it's almost impossible. This is bad. And I start looking at the weather for the next day and the weather is supposed to be the worst of the entire week. News trucks from every major TV station in the world have been camped in the mountains all week. Thousands of people had gathered to watch. Red Bull had spent millions of dollars in planning and promotion. And when Jeb requested to delay the stunt and wait for better weather, the organizers told him that was not an option. They'd run out of budget. It was now or never. Like the pressure was absolutely crazy. So next day I wake up knowing I'm not ready for it. And we get to the location and the clouds are covering up. You can't even see the mountain and it's raining and it's windier than it's ever been. I mean, the landing area is like 30 knot winds. So it's just like, this is impossible. We can't do this. And our cutoff time for that jump is 4.30 on the dot. The chopper could not take off after 4.30. It could take off up to 4.30, but after that it was done. At right around four o'clock, I go into like this little tent and I start taking my stuff off. And as I'm taking my stuff off, the main organizer, he walks and he's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm taking my stuff off. And he's like, Jeff, so we got 25 minutes. Just leave your stuff on for 25 more minutes. And then, you know, at 4.30, take your stuff off. I'm like, dude, I'm taking off now. There's no point. I mean, we're done. So I'm sitting in there just kind of like, I can't believe that this is like the first event that's like just failed. That's not going to happen. But then I was kind of like, you know, it's a good thing because I wasn't ready. I'm not prepared. I didn't get the training. I shouldn't be jumping this anyway. <laughs> and one of my friend's wife walks in and she's like, hey, Jeb, uh, you need to come out here and take a look at this. I walk out and the sky is clear. And everyone's looking at me. And they're like, are you going to go? And I'm just like, you can just, I'm like, oh my God. And I say, yeah, I, I'm going to do it. And right as I say that, my mom standing next to me, she starts crying. And I look at her and I'm just like, mom, you know, I'm sorry, but you just can't do that right now. And she just kind of turned around and walked away because it's like, you know, it, everyone knew how bad it was, everyone. So I run back into the tent, start putting my gear on, and I start rushing towards the helicopter. And as I'm rushing towards the helicopter, the woman who was like the embedded reporter for, I think it was NBC. She's standing there because she wants to do a little interview as I'm running up. And as I'm running up, she, she stops me really quick and she looks at the camera and says, turn the camera off. And she's like, okay, you don't have to do this. Like, what are you doing? Like, because she's been watching this whole time. She's like, so this is insanity. Like, do not do this. Like, what are you doing? And I'm just like, dude, I don't have a choice. Even she could tell that this was not something I should be doing. But Jeb had already put on his gear and he had a promise to keep. I kid you not, the helicopter left the ground at, at literally 4.29. I mean, you can't script it. Even to this day, that's unbelievable. So I'm in the helicopter, we take off, but the whole time I'm thinking, now nah, you know what? The winds are gonna pick up, right? The wind, there's no way I'm doing this. I look at him like, dude, we're way too far away. He's like, this is where you get out. And I'm like, you're trying to kill me, dude. There's no way. He's like, this is where you jump. And then all of a sudden, the pilot starts setting up for the run to go. And I go through a mental breakdown. I'm like, I am going to die. Like, uh, there's no way I can do this. There's so many things that can go wrong that are going to kill me. And I'm like, I just 
got finished with my surgeries. I just finally got better from being totally destroyed for a year and a half. To have gone through such a traumatic experience and be so badly injured and then recover and then all of a sudden be sitting in this helicopter knowing that I'm about to get destroyed again. If I'm lucky, I'll get destroyed again. I decide I'm like, I'm not doing this. Like the, people are just gonna have to understand. I didn't get the training. I didn't, we didn't get, a, I didn't get any of the training jumps I needed. I told them. And what happened in my brain, it, it's really hard to describe because I realized I wasn't just done with that stunt. I was done jumping, period. I was never going to jump again. I do not enjoy this. I do not like this experience. I do not like anything about this. This is absolute torture. And I, I, I literally start crying. And I realized my life was over. The life that I had been training for since I was 16 years old, everything that I have done was done. And I remember all of a sudden, this thought entered my mind that's like, well, okay, Jeb, so you don't do it. You land in the helicopter. Okay. Maybe you don't die today, but you're going to still die, whether it's tomorrow or five years from now, or well, hey, 20 years from now. One day, you're going to die. And as you're dying, I can guarantee you, you're gonna look back on this moment and you're going to regret it. This will be the moment that you allowed fear to control your life control your destiny, tell you who you are, and you're going to regret that. If you're gonna die anyways, today is as good a day to die as any other. And it was this weird feeling where I'm like, yeah, you know what? Today is as good a day to die as any other. I'm doing it. Hanging there in the eerily still air of the late afternoon, time slowed, just as it had on that very first jump. His entire life, everything he'd worked for and endured, was balanced on the knife edge of this one jump. He'd been suicidal. He'd learned how to fight the fire of his mind with the fire of adrenaline. He'd torn his flesh, broken his body, been eaten alive, witnessed his friends blown to pieces. He had walked the line between life and death, and he was ready to walk it for what may be the last time. And all of a sudden, you know, I felt the tap on my shoulder, and I remember stepping out of the helicopter, and I was standing there feeling very calm. I had accepted my fate. And I remember stepping out of the chopper, and I was flying, and the first thought that went through my head is, oh, I'm way too far away, I'm gonna die. Yeah, I can't make it. And then I kept flying, and I'm like, oh, you know what? Actually, I think I'm pretty good. I think, I, I think I'm gonna make it. And then I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I'm really gonna make it. Like I could actually fly over this thing. Like I actually don't even have to fly in it. I can just fly over the top. I mean, nobody's gonna know the difference. I'm like, I'm like, why not just go over the top of this thing? Nobody's gonna know. And then I'm like, you know what? You didn't come here to fly over the top. You know, just go ahead and enter it at the beginning, come out of it at the end, and wherever you are, just pull and see what happens. So I enter this thing at the beginning, and it, within a matter of seconds, I'm enveloped by it, and I'm deep inside, 
and it's way narrower than I was expecting. When I'm doing this strange contorted flight that I've never experienced before, I get so close that I'm like, last time I was this close, I impacted. Like I'm, I, I had the visual of impact, impact, impact the whole time. And I come out at the end of it and all of a sudden it opens and I'm like, ah! you know, and I'm like, oh shit, I'm going too fast. But I couldn't like flare and bleed speed because I wouldn't be able to get to my landing area. So I just had to dump at full speed. So I just basically pull. I open with the hardest opening I've ever had on a wingsuit. It ripped all my cameras off of my body and I just watched them all fly off of me. I look over and I'm like, oh no, I'm not gonna make my landing area. I reach up, grab toggles, turn. I'm not gonna make it, I'm not gonna make it. I'm like, oh no, I can just see, I'm gonna slam this cliff. And I'm like, coming, 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 coming. I have to raise my legs to get over this concrete railing. I raise my legs and impact in the only spot, like at the very beginning of the stairs. I mean, barely made it. And I hit so hard that I cracked. I mean, I cracked ribs. Nobody knows. I didn't tell anybody, but I actually cracked some ribs in my right side and it was quite painful, but I wasn't dead, you know? And I was laying there. I, you could just hear me screaming because I, I couldn't believe it. Because, dude, 30 minutes before that moment, we were done. This was over. This wasn't going to happen. About two minutes before that moment, I was giving up on my life. I was never going to jump again, ever. Like it was done, I was done. And here I was on the ground, pretty much uninjured, having just done what we thought was not possible, was never going to happen. and. I'd like to say the feeling was good, but it wasn't. Flying Dagger was just the heaviest, gnarliest, just most unsettling. And we made a documentary about it called The Flying Dagger, you know, and it's funny because the documentary is, I feel, the best documentary ever made because you can feel everything I just talked about. You see it, you feel it. You feel the pain and you feel the suffering, you feel the fear. And you, you see that it's not just me, everyone's terrified. Everyone knows what this is. Everyone understands that death is just, I mean, death is hanging on me. I mean, it's literally on me. And it was just, oh, it's just evil. I'm terrified of what I do. As scared as you would be standing on a thousand foot building and jumping off of it is exactly how scared I am. I am not a superhuman. I'm a person just like you. You know, I, I've just spent my life training how to work through it, how to do things scared, because that's what it is. I'm doing this stuff scared, very, very scared. And, and at the end of the day, I, that's what courage is, right? It doesn't take courage to do something that doesn't scare you. It takes courage to do something that does scare you. And in that moment, you, your body just responds and it's so powerful that you understand things that you didn't before. And it makes you realize how important those moments are and how important your life is, and how much everything matters. Through my experiences, those getting broken, being seriously injured, recovering from serious injuries, spending years in rehab, learning to walk again, multiple surgeries, crushed skull, broken bones, broken back, broken legs, broken everything. 
hundred dead friends. And you start like, all of a sudden, it starts putting life into perspective, you know? And you start focusing more on what matters, what's real, what means something, and everything else just kind of melts away. I find it fascinating that a lot of other people seem to be so terrified of this thing that's so natural. And once you stop pretending like it's something different than what it is, once you start really accepting death, then you can just finally go, you know what? I only have a little bit of time to exist. I should probably use it for something. And that is a powerful moment when you come to that realization that you're not waiting to die and go somewhere else and then do rad shit, right? Because if that's what you're waiting for, I got some bad news, bro. You've wasted your life. And actually, at the end of the day, and this is what I kind of learned, is that really is all that matters. Nothing else matters except a little bit of time you get to exist, right? Because it's limited. I mean, don't rush death. I mean, death is coming anyway. And since you realize death is coming anyway, that means you can then use that time to do something special. And that's what's truly remarkable about Jeb. It's not that he's fearless. It's that he feels the fear and does it anyway. It's that he doesn't let the fear of dying stop him from living the life of his dreams. Thank you, Jeb. Thank you so much for taking us on this unbelievable adventure and sharing your story with all of us. Go and check out his documentaries, including Flying Dagger, the story we just told, Wingsuit Warrior, that's awesome, Heaven's Gate, Daredevils, Journey to the Center, and lots, lots more. They will blow your mind. And he has a YouTube channel under his name, Jeb Corliss. Remember, that's two S's. And you can find him on Instagram and Facebook under that same name too. Also, please remember that new book. It's called Memoirs from the Edge, Exploring the Line Between Life and Death. It's a great read. It's really insightful. It's full of lots of incredible nail-biting stories, but lots of wisdom and inspiration too. And he has so many stories, we didn't have a chance to cover half of them today. So please do go and check out Jeb's book. So thank you so much for listening, guys. And don't forget to share this show with your friends. Connect with me on Instagram and Facebook at Armchair Explorer Podcast. And if you can, become a patron of the show to help us to continue to bring these stories to you. Find out more about that at patreon.com forward slash armchair explorer podcast. And the link is in the show notes too. So until next time, keep jumping into the unknown, keep doing what scares you and keep filling your time with what really matters in life. Because the more we look for wonder in the world, the more the wonder of the world becomes a part of who we are. Dare to be truly alive. This episode was produced by Armchair Productions. Find out about our other shows at armchair-productions.com. Jenny Allison co-produced the show with me and Charles Tyree did the audio editing and sound design. Thank you guys. Amazing work. I'm Aaron Miller and thanks for listening.